Welcome back or welcome to History for Humanity, guys, where we are going to be doing a quick mini-series on reviewing all of AP World History. Hopefully that you learned just in time for the AP exam. I'm sorry if you see this a little bit too late. I mean, should have found me sooner, I guess. But I'm glad that you are here to join me. And let's get started with Unit 5, where we're going to actually... I know I talked about revolutions last time. I'm sorry for the background noise, but we are genuinely going to talk about lots of revolutions in this unit so let's get started okay right now we have to start with some peace i guess some peace we're gonna learn about some philosophy real quickly sorry gotta get some water in maybe water intake but this is the new age of development of new ideas it's also known as the age of isms so there are many thinkers that we're going to discuss so let's get a quick review of the people who symbolize this time with their thinking first person up is francis bacon <clears throat> who developed the idea that knowledge comes from experiencing and to use data to support your reasoning or otherwise known as empiricism. We see Thomas Hobbes. He's famous for saying that humans' lives were nasty, brutish, and short. And some of you to this day might be like, you know what, he was on to something. He also said that people agreed to be governed by strong central governments by giving up some of their rights in exchange for law and order. Now, John Locke was not like Hobbes. Locke believed that people, because people gave up some of their natural rights, their reason to rebel against the government was justified. He stated that people had the natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which should sound familiar, if you are from America especially. So let's move on to Baron Montesquieu. He went later on to influence American government. I'm sorry, there's going to be a lot of government, government popping up. He believed it right for the government to separate its systems, like branches of government. We also see Voltaire, who was known as an advocate of civil rights, religious liberty, and judicial reform. Another philosopher or thinker was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, an optimist who laid his beliefs for the raising of children and education, as well as the progression of society. We also see Adam Smith. You may like him, you may hate him, but he supported a more or less a fair trade in response to mercantilism, and he laid the basis for dun-dun-dun capitalism. So capitalism essentially is where companies, natural resources, and production are privately owned for profit. And, you know, the wealth of nations. Didn't he write that? Pretty sure he did. But we see Thomas Paine. He's famous for advocating for liberty from Britain. And he supported deism, the belief that God created time but does not interfere with history and does not really base their... Deists do not really base their beliefs on the Bible. He's saying God did make us. God is real, but he just put a clock on and he's like gonna watch us in reverse or something. He's gonna set, he's gonna watch us in video. He's not gonna do anything about it. He's just gonna let us do our thing. That's what he believed. We also see conservatism, which was the belief that we should stick to traditional beliefs and it was, they were against the Enlightenment. They just were like, nah, I'm not with it. But we also see utopian socialism. So, Utopian socialists were confident in making ideal conditions for people to live, like equal rights in a positive workplace, with shared ownership, which would make a world a better place for everyone. We also see classical liberalism, which is the belief in natural rights, constitutional government, and they supported Adam Smith's idea of a laissez-faire economy. We also see the rise of feminism, which is advocating for women's rights and that women should have the same rights and opportunities as their male counterparts, like the right to vote and go to school. If that was a thing back then. But I'm pretty sure if it was like something you need to know, just know. That's what it was. We also see abolitionism. 
which was the movement created to end slavery and extend rights. We also see the end of serfdom. And the last ism for right now is Zionism, which was the desire for Jews to reestablish in their homeland in the Middle East. Now, that's, that's the Enlightenment, but let's go to nationalism and revolutions. Okay, so as there were more ideas, governments changed and reflected these ideas. We see a lot of revolutions take place. The first one is the American Revolution. So as the American colonies were growing apart from the British politically and were growing to hate the taxes they were going to have to pay because of factors like the French and Indian War and many, many other acts like the Stamp Act. So there is an attempt to negotiate, but since it failed, we see the Declaration of Independence sent to Britain in the start of the revolution. And as you all know, the American colonists became successful in 1783 with the help of France. We see the New Zealand Wars. It was when the British landed in New Zealand, which were inhabited by the Maori tribe. And although they were separated into smaller tribes that engaged in warfare against each other, they all united to fight against the British after being annexed but eventually lost in 1872. We'll see the French Revolution. So like Britain, France had lost the debt. So the French set up the States General, which we discussed previously in like past unit, with the three social classes, which were the clergy, nobles, and commoners. Now, this hadn't been done in like 100 years or something, so this was like important. And commoners, they got mad, so they said, we're going to create the National Assembly because there was um, inequality in voting. So the French Revolution starts with commoners storming the Bastille, the ending of feudalism, and they led to the Reign of Terror, which is when thousands of opponents to the revolution were executed. And it ended with Napoleon Bonaparte becoming the emperor in 1804. We also see another revolution called the Haitian Revolution. So in St. Domingue, also known as Hispaniola, saw slaves start killing their masters and burning their homes. They teamed up with the Maroons, which were people who had escaped slavery. These revolts were led by Toussaint Louverture, who proved to be a good general and made Britain, Spain, and France fight against each other. He established himself as governor for life in Haiti and tried to work with France, but was later betrayed and died in France in 1803. His predecessor, Jean-Jacques de Saline, declared independence and Haiti became the first black-led country in the Western Hemisphere. It was also the first country in Latin America to gain independence, and the only country to do so as the result of a slave revolt. We also see the Creole revolutions in Latin America. So Creoles, remember them? They were born to the Americas with European ancestry, and they were starting to hate the fact that they weren't getting much of a voice in their government, and mestizos, they also wanted a part of the pie of wealth. So as, their, as these countries became independent, Spain had very few colonies left. In Puerto Rico, for example, Lola, Rod Lola Rodriguez de Tio, whose captivating writings influenced independence, and although she always ended up in exile, she remained an activist for social justice. And lastly, the revolt in the Philippines. Another one of Spain's colonies, which was inspired by the Enlightenment and nationalism, which led to the demand for more autonomy in the Philippines with the propaganda movement, which is led by José Rizal and caused suspicion by the Spanish. Initially, it wasn't even to overthrow the Spanish, but the Spanish were like, nah, that's us right there. And they ended up arresting and later executing him, which then led to the Philippine Revolution in 1896. So this pretty much could have been avoided if the Spanish were not being paranoid. But yeah, that's the Enlightenment and the revolutions. All that is coming to play. Okay, let's talk about the Industrial Revolution. We see a rise in people using machinery to get things done and a foster economic growth. We see this begin as a result of the Agriculture Revolution in Great Britain, 
where they use crop rotation and seed drilling, which seed drilling is like a device that officially plants seeds in a designated area, which allows for more food production and hence more people. We see improved medical care, meaning more babies could live and people could live longer and an increase in factories because, you know, that's what we all want, more workers. But clothes were all handmade and the arrival of the cottage industry arose because of the surplus of cotton that came from the Americas. This made jobs for women and although they had low pay, they had some independence. Before we get into what's happening in the U.S., let's talk about how Britain had the upper hand. Some of the key things to remember is that they had access to many natural resources that came from their colonies. Access to waterways, strong fleets, and protection of private property, as well as, like, you know, a bigger population. But industrialization also hit the U.S., and new inventions like the spinning jenny and the use of interchangeable parts allowed for more factories. We also see how people are specialized in their tasks to become more efficient, which created the assembly line. Okay. Now, let's talk about how industrialization spread to other parts of the world. So, in France, they were late to industrialization because they had many wars and conflicts. Germany led the steel and coal industry after unification. The U.S., like we mentioned, was, you know, they got hit by the industrialization bug. And they were the leading industrial force worldwide. They were, um, it was largely because of human capital that came from rural parts of the country and immigrants trying to escape poverty. In Russia, they remain mostly agricultural but developed the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which allowed for Russia to have more access to trade. Japan was the first country in Asia to industrialize and other, after learning from Britain and the U.S., they built up their economic and military power to protect their traditional culture. We also see countries like Egypt and India fail to dominate trade. There is a transition where the Middle East and Asia are no longer dominating trade. Now, why don't we talk about the technology actually used in the Industrial Age? So there are many innovations created, like the steam engine by James Watt, which allowed for coal to create steam and another source of energy. This helped to rapidly expand factory buildings, which no longer was dependent on location. We also see this being implemented into ships, which no longer depend on the winds. Iron also resulted from the steam engine, which led to the second industrial revolution. That's right. Yeah, there is two. So in the second one, we see it being led not only by Britain, but the U.S. and Germany. This is where we see the rise of steel, machinery, and electronics. Oil drilling began with um, the use of electricity, allowing for electric generators, and street lighting. We see Alexander Graham Bell invent the telephone, and we also see that due to inventions such as the telegraph by Samuel Morse, the use of railroads and steamships allowed for increased communication and the increase in migration. Now, what did the government have to do with this? So we see like countries in the Middle East and Asia, they suffered a period of weakening like the Ottoman Empire, which failed to modernize along with Western countries. Because of this, we see the involvement of Muhammad Ali in Egypt, which was a part of the Ottoman Empire. Muhammad Ali was an officer who was elected by the locals to become governor of Egypt who did campaigns and established the first newspaper in the Islamic world. He reformed the economy by charging high taxes that caused peasants to give up their land to the state. During the Napole Napoleonic Wars, the Ottoman Empire made profit because of the wheat they had produced since Europe had high prices for it. We see Muhammad Ali transition Egypt into industrialization by creating factories to compete with those of European countries. That is why he is known as Egypt's first great modern ruler. Now, let's go back to Japan. 
As you know, they were the first Asian country to industrialize. During this time, we see their quick transition into industrialization. Japan faced some problems and fixed them with the Meiji Restoration. And after being isolated from the world and then being threatened by Commodore Matthew Perry to trade with the U.S., Japan decided to adopt Western technology so they would be able to defend themselves and their culture and not suffer the same humiliation China went through with the Opium Wars. The key takeaways from this restoration was abolishing feudalism, establishing a constitutional monarchy, and producing stuff like tea and weaponry, which was made possible because of the increase in taxes. Okay, so why don't we talk about some of the economic effects of the Industrial Revolution, which, you know, is relatively good because people made more money. So businesses change their form of operation. So people start to form corporations or a business chartered by the government as a legal entity owned by stockholders who buy partial ownership of the business to have less risk and therefore make people want to invest more. Some corporations become monopolies, which means they have no competition in their market. We also see the incoming of transnational companies, meaning they operate in more than one country. Another way to reduce risk was through insurance, which arose during this time as well as banks since people wanted a place to store their money. We see more people spend their time working, so people learn to advertise new products like the bicycle and sports equipment as a way to distract them from their boring life. This leads to a rise in consumerism, targeted to the middle class since they had some disposable income, as well as forms to stimulate social life with the construction of bars and parks. Okay, now that we discussed some of the economic developments because of industrialization, this, you know, might have brought in more money, but some people, they were kind of mad about industrialization because we see there's like a lot of factories coming into place, but that means there's got to be a lot of people working here. And you would think, oh, you know, you're benefiting the economy. We're going to pay you well. No, they worked really long and they were paid really bad. So the workers were like, let's form a labor union. And basically, a labor union is when workers would negotiate with their employers. So we all see that Britain, they expand their voting rights to more men. And people found themselves advocating for child labor. No, I do not mean they're like, yes, kids in factories. What I mean to say is that people made children's primary focus um, was to get an education and not work in factories at such a young age. But like mentioned in the beginning of this video or this episode, we talked about capitalism. So right now we're going to talk about how others wanted to provide an alternative because people argued that it's inhumane for workers to live in a capitalist society. For example, we see John Stuart Mill. He believed in utilitarianism and that was basically finding what works best for the most people. Utopian socialists, they, they wanted to replace capitalism altogether. And utilitarianism was trying to say, like, the problems with capitalism. And we also see Karl Marx and his friend Frederick Engels write the Communist Manifesto, where they argued that capitalism was similar to feudalism, and even though it brought lots of wealth, it created poverty and misery. So he said, we are going to start off with socialism. And then we would come to communism, where there were no more social classes. Because he said it was, you know, the battle between the have and have-nots. But moving forward in the Ottoman Empire, we see Sultan Mahmud II reform the empire, which is known as the Tanzimat, by eliminating the Janissaries. So the Janissaries, they were elite warriors loyal to the Sultan. Okay? They, they remove them. And they remove corruption. They, they remove um, the secular education system and the edict. We also see, um, sorry for the pronunciation, Hati Humayun, which 
is, you know, updating the legal system and it benefited men, but women, they weren't even taken into consideration. But during these reforms, we also see the Sultan Abdul Hamid take power in 1876. He was also known as the Red Sultan because he killed between 100,000 to 250,000 Armenians in what is known as the Hamidian Massacres. Not only do we see reform in the Ottoman Empire, but in China as well, where we see the the organization of the self-strengthening movement that was led by Emperor Guangzhou. But his aunt, Empress Dowager Cixi, who was also his adoptive mother and the most powerful person in the empire, she's like, we can't industrialize, we need to keep tradition. She didn't want China to have any connection with the outside world in terms of modernization. But, you know, this didn't end up working out for her because in the end, she couldn't keep up with what was going to come. And it resulted in the scholar gentry coming to an end, which meant there was no civil service exam. There was also corruption. And finally, in Japan, we see the end of the samurai and resistance to reform. But we also see an increase in literacy rates and a growing economy. Okay, now that we've talked about some of the responses... We can talk about society as a whole because of um, industrialization and what it was like. So with the spread of urbanization, living conditions worsened, specifically for the working class who live in tenements, usually owned by their employers. So there's an increase in the spread of disease as well as violence and fires, which led to the formation of fire and police departments. Later on, um, industrialization helped improve the lives of many in urban areas, which is why many people moved there to gain more opportunities like better schooling. It also created low-skilled jobs since you didn't need to know how to make a complete product, so that meant low pay. And because workers were easily replaceable, you literally had no choice but to keep going. There's also a new middle class, labeled as white-collared workers who worked in offices. The owners of large corporations became the ones leading modernized society. Before working in factories, families often worked near each other, but because of industrialization, They had to work long hours to feed their families. There's also the use of child labor and different effects on women that depended on their social class. The idea of being a housewife became popular because it showed that the husband could financially financially support the family. Women of the working class had to learn to manage working a job and taking care of the household needs along with raising children. We all know that factories cause a lot of pollution since the smoke causes lung problems. And polluted waters also opened up the spread for many diseases like cholera and typhoid. So that wraps up Unit 5, the Unit of Revolutions and the Industrial Age. I hope you gained something from this and I hope you're ready for Unit 6.